You mean there's a man down the creek broke his leg? <laughs> Every week you give me something that I always crop down put at the start <laughs> or the end of the pod, mate, and I've just got it there. Hello and welcome back to The Relatable Game. This is episode three and you're joined by me, Herbie Tyler, Darren Young and Anthony Hassan, as well as a special guest this week who we'll introduce a little bit later. We should warn people that although we aspire to keep the content of the pods as clean as possible, it could be the occasional slip up, you might hear the odd naughty word. Okay, so gents, this week I thought we could look into some coaching bits. Obviously, I'm a coach, Daz, you're a coach. And our guest today is also a coach. His name's Macinelli. Yeah, I've known him and I've coached with him for quite a few years now. He's a good lad and uh, he's got interesting stories and an interesting outlook. And he's done scouting as well, Daz, which sort of ties into what you've done in the past with your agent work. I don't know if you've done any scouting in the past as such. Uh, I've done a um, scout qualification, which I've got, which was very interesting. There's two sides of being a scout, and it, individual or team scouting. So when you do team scouting, obviously you're looking at how do they play out, where do they put corners, where do they put throw-ins, and different things like that. So it's a huge different side of things when you're looking at a coach or an individual, sorry, a team or an individual side of things. But it's interesting. The team scouting side, I've I've not done as much of that. I've, my, the scouting I've done has always been around um, youth players. So going out into grassroots football and looking to recruit kids for the sort of next step up, the, the step between um, the grassroots clubs and the academies, the pro academies, um, that yeah. sort of pre-academy sort of thing we used to do, Daz, together. You know, I've always been involved with that, but I have done before, I've done a couple of games where I've gone and watched opposition so I went out and watched the game and I noticed one of the centre-backs, he wasn't the best on the turn. So if someone glued to him and stuck on him last man, he could get really easily turned. And at the time we had this player called Junior and he's rapid, absolutely rapid. And I told him before the game, I said, just stay high and just glue yourself to that player. I said, wherever he goes, you go. Just always play off him. He scored two goals because he just did that. He just rolled him and uh, the lad can cope with it. So it's really good because I don't know how much it's done at that level. I know, obviously, it's really in-depth. You've got um, football analytics and stuff at the higher level, but it seems to become more prominent in the non-league game as well. I don't know if, Anne, I don't know if you've ever heard of anything like that in the non-league game, mate. I know I know. occasionally if someone's free, they'll be sent to do a bit of scouting here or there, watch a team that's coming up. But obviously, I mean, a lot of it at that sort of level is about resources and sort of fun. Like you've got, you've got to have someone available to do it. You're not paying someone twenty grand a year to to be your scout, are you? So it's not it's not easy to do, I suppose. But um, that's one one thing you always worry about with doing the uh, videos and stuff for the football club is it, that gives other clubs something to watch and scout on you. That's a lot easier. They don't have to send someone down. They can just sit at home and watch how you score goals. Oh, yeah, of course. So. Well, at sort of your club level, how many clubs really film their games in that league, would you say? Um, I'd say at least half of them. Obviously, some then will always be out. You'll always be able to see stuff when you watch them play away at those clubs. Mm-hmm. Some clubs will go away and film games as well. I know Carl Shorten film away. Worthing occasionally film away. 
there's some clubs where it's just it's not viable for them to even do that. I mean, it costs it cost money to even do that, really. But I think the thing with the, the filming side of things, though, what you've got to have a look at is that when you're filming, and your your main focus is on that ball and what's happening. But when you do it as a mm. scout, it could be that you've been sent to a club to have a look at their defence. So you, you might watch part of the game for possibly 15, 20 minutes, but the rest of it will just be purely looking at the defence and how they shape up and the body language. And it will be a case of, OK, the goalkeeper kicks it to the right back. What does the rest of the team do? And you've got to draw little diagrams and everything. And from every part of what you give, you normally give it on a, a Sunday or a Monday after the game on a Saturday. Will That will angle the training sessions for a decent team for that week. I was going to say, you're, ne- you're never going to get that level of analysis off of a video, no matter whether you're watching it. No, you won't. We've only got one camera. You're not going to get, even if you're watching it on Sky, you're not getting that level of analysis. And I, th- I, don't, I think a lot of people that maybe don't go to football as much don't realise quite the difference of what you'll see at a game, especially if you've got a decent vantage point in comparison to watching it on TV, watching it on Sky, where you're only, you, the only in-depth stuff you're really going to know this is what Gary Neville or whoever picks up afterwards. We were at Deal pre-season this year, and they've got they've got these old second-hand conservatories they've put above a little stand. They're little brilliant little things. Their chairman was absolutely buzzing about them, and they let me have the middle one. Right, yeah, you can go up there because obviously there's no one in, so their fans are going to want to see this video just as much as ours. And their uh, their coaching team took the left-hand one. The first 45 minutes, there's a lot of effing and jeffing on the camera. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's what you've got to look out for. I mean, um, it, it goes right the way down to Hudson, my son. He plays for um, Gillingham under-11s. And they video, I think it's one in every five games. But you, they've got a guy, what he's ground level, but he's got a big boom what goes up maybe he's 15 foot and the camera's on there with a little screen on the bottom. Um, and it just gives, when we watch them back, because they put them on our social media side of things, that's actually interesting to see. Um, but you can hear quite a few of the parents going, oh, look at that, that shouldn't have happened. Why are we doing that? What's the referee doing? Oh, this is ridiculous. And it, you can hear quite a lot of the feedback, which is obviously uh, mostly negative. Okay, so we are joined by our first ever TRG pod guest. It's Chino. So welcome to the podcast, Chino. How are you doing, mate? Evening, fellas. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. How are you? All good, mate. All good. Um, so for those that don't know, say a little bit about yourself, sort of your involvement in football. Yeah, so I've, I've been coaching for quite a few years now, probably I think 15, 16 years. And uh, yeah, I've had quite a few roles in that time. Managed to take my B licence a few years ago as well. So um, I've been quite fortunate to work with some, some pretty good players. And um, yes, still coaching at the moment. But obviously, um, as we all know, things are in a little bit of a shutdown. So it's very frustrating for me. It's frustrating for the players. But it's the way it's got to be, unfortunately. So just eager to get back to it, as I'm sure you all are as well. Yeah, definitely. I'm missing it massively, to be honest. You know, I live and breathe it. Well, we all do, don't we, in our own ways. You know, Daz, you've got um, Hudson, he's missing his football. Um, obviously, I go out and watch games all the time, but I'm also coaching locally um, at my club and playing this season. And you've got a massive role at um, folks in the Victor that you do. So we're all sort of missing it in different ways, really. So it's a big shame that it's gone the way oh, it has. Hold on, but... let's, let's put this right there. I'm not missing it because it means that I'm saving on petrol money. <laughs> I don't have to run my boy round the whole of the country to play football. So I'm quids in. Oh, we know you love it, really. 
but yeah, no. So uh, you do a bit of uh, you do the scouting side as well, don't you? You know, part of a professional academy, so that involves the sort of recruitment locally of players and the development of players. And then also you're working in education as well. So you must sort of look after the football on that side of things as well. Yeah. So obviously my, my teaching jobs um, at the moment, it's frustrating for the, for the kids at school, as you can imagine, because football for a lot of them, particularly the boys, but there's a lot of girls that play now as well, but they're just really frustrated because you can't even, at play times, they're not even really allowed to gather and play football. So that side of it's been difficult. And I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said we've all been affected by it. And I think it hits different areas of the game. So you can talk about kids playing in the school playground being affected. But then as Darren said there, his lad, who's a very good player, plays in an academy. He's suffering from it as well. So it's filtering all the way through. You touched on the scouting side as well. That's again, that's something that that's been really difficult to do for a while now because you're not allowed, or you know, you coach a team locally anyway. You're not allowed near the pitch unless you've got some reason to be with a player at the moment. So so I think for a lot of clubs, that's been difficult with their scouting side of it because, as I say, you can't get close to matches like you'd normally be able to. So it's it's had a real knock-on effect throughout. But going back to what we were talking about earlier, um, Chino, about the academies, I feel bad for players because your age group's under-12s, yeah? I think under-12s yep. is a big age group because it's at like their first year or second year in um, secondary school. Um, the game starts changing. It becomes competitive yeah, it's their first season of 11 aside. It's their first year at secondary school. And it's it, that's obviously two big changes in themselves. Chuck into the mix the fact that obviously it's been really, really stop-start and it's it's tough. I think the, the key thing about that age, and I think when you start getting to under 12, under 13, I'm very much the belief that before they get to kind of secondary school, positions aren't massively important. They should be adaptable. Maybe if you're told to play left back, you never played their pool, go and give it a go, see how you get on, you never know. Once you start getting to under 12 and beyond that under 13, players are then starting to realise, actually, this is where I play. Coaches are starting to realise where... I'm not saying that you'll never be asked to play somewhere else because you might get into the first team eventually and play in a completely different position. But at that age, they're now starting to take on a little bit more responsibility. You start recognising um, the attributes of a player, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a good age to coach, actually, because as I say, they're, they're now it's not all about direction from the sideline. They've got to take a lot more on themselves. So in a game situation, we have a lot of emphasis, and this is quite big from the FA actually, about the players being leaders on the pitch themselves. So if they notice a problem on the pitch, can they solve it without me or another coach telling them what the best plan of action is? So, I, I coach the same age group as you at the minute. Um, well, this season I do. Um, and it's my first year dropping back down because I went up to under 18s and I spent a couple of years under 16s, under 18s dealing with the older age group. And I liked having that, um, being on the periphery of adult football where you can see the shift in mentality, you can see them turn into men almost and you, you're preparing them for that step up because at 16 years old, they can play men's football um, and they're starting to get opportunities and stuff and you've, you've mentally got to pull them up to that stage. And it's amazing how similar under 12s is in that respect, in that you've got to pull them up mentally to to cope with 11 aside football, to cope with a stronger level of football. And uh, I think, I mean, locally, the county league's come into effect there as well. So the Kent League and stuff and the standard of football jumps massively from what they were yeah. playing before. And you, you as a coach, you've got to pull those players through. And I feel that this year with the disruption we've had, these players are going to miss out on a, a very important year of their development. Yeah. Um, it could really, really actually detriment them. Um, I know there's a, a, a lot of players that need a lot of work and attention at that age group because of, as you said, the other factors that are going on outside of football. 
sometimes the sort of coaches are the ones that help them in other elements as well, just by giving them general advice that they can apply to football. They take that away and apply that to other things. And they're not learning those skills and not learning those development, even from a non-football perspective. Yeah, I think you're right. I think COVID as a whole, it's affected obviously, obviously everybody. But I think there are specific years at school that have been worse affected based around whereabouts they are in the school system. And I think year seven, which is under 12, year six, which is under 11, those two in particular, and obviously you've got your secondary school years, GCSEs and whatever. Like my, my oldest son's only eight. So yeah, he's been seven. So he's been affected by it. Don't even know how old he is. <laughs> but actually he's in year three. And ultimately when this is all kind of done and dusted, he won't have missed out massively. But as you said earlier, this year, particularly for under 12, under 11, there's a lot of learning that you do in those years. So yeah, it has had a big impact. The first thing when the boys arrive for a session, it's not about, right, we're doing this, we're doing that. It's just... But it's still, I think, vitally important that you have like a five minute chat with the group at the start just to find out maybe individually as a group, how was your day at school? How's things going? Just to kind of touch base with them, because as you say, you are more than a coach, especially at the moment. Going back earlier, you mentioned that you'd done your UEFA B. Um, what did you, I mean, I've done it as well. What did you learn? What was the biggest thing on your UEFA B? What changed the way what you coach? I would say coaching away from the ball, because... We're very much, I don't mean to sound patronising on this, but if you haven't done it, I think most people, and I was the same before I'd done it, you coach where the ball is all the time. And it just opened my eyes up to, actually, there's a whole game going on out there. Even if you're playing on the right side of midfield and your team's in possession and the ball's at left back, you're vitally important to, to what goes on in that next move. That was it for me, that you, you had to have eyes everywhere. And it takes a while to get used to that. I started When I started watching games, because the course took about nine months, when I was watching games, I'd watch them in a completely different way. And yeah. I'd start saying, on a minute. Before, you might have said, a keeper might let a shot. And you say, well, that's crap keeping. Then suddenly you think, oh, actually, it's not great keeping. But if the left back's here and the right back's there and yeah. there's more pressure on the ball there, then it the keeper wouldn't have had to make the save. So that's the thing I would say. It's opened up my eyes to, to the complete game. Anthony, you've got a completely different... You've got, you're sat in a call here with three coaches <laughs> Matt, I don't know if you, um, I don't know if you know Ant at all, but um, no. Anthony runs the social media and films all the games and stuff at Folkestone and Victor. Okay. Um, so he has a completely different perspective of coaches and coaching. People talk about referees being a uh, different breed of human. They're, a lot of people can't relate to them because they're so wrapped up in what they do. Uh, players, they they don't understand why anyone would ever want to be a referee, for example. Coaches, you stick three coaches in a room, we'll talk for hours and hours about every little detail of football and we'll, we'll never shut us up. Uh, it be interesting to know what coaches and coaching comes across to someone uh, that's not involved in it. What do you see from yeah, I mean, your perspective? The one thing I, I get from what I do now is that I'm always looking to listen to what the coaches say, even if they're, if they're talking to the lads or if you're talking to them having a beer afterwards, it's always interesting to hear what they've got to say because there is always going to be stuff that I don't see, even if I'm, as I said earlier, up that scaffold tower where I've got probably a better view. There's plenty of stuff I'm not going to see that they do, even from that worser angle, if, you know, if, if that makes sense. You know, so and, and often something will happen you know, a goal comes off and you'll find out that that wasn't uh, off the cuff. That was scripted. I remember a goal we scored last year, just a fairly simple goal, a throw in, someone laid it off, he stuck it in the bottom corner. And when I was speaking to him over the summer, talking about his goals, it turns out that was something the coaches had come up with for him for it to, the throw in to be taken to the 
to the centre forward and he was going to make that run across him that then completely bamboozled the defenders and they picked that up. Two minutes into the second half, they've done it. If you hadn't spoken to them, you wouldn't have known that that was something that they, that they planned and come up with. You get a lot of armchair coaches in football, don't you? People that will sit there, watch a game and then they they think they can you know critique a game in vast amounts of detail and the amount of detail that actually goes in behind the scenes um, and those, as you say, those little things you work on. For example, I like um, players to receive the ball in front of them so to travel onto the ball um, so that their first touch can be positive into a space and that's I always teach that and I will work on that time and time and time again. Your first touch has to be into an open space every single time, never towards a player, never towards a a congested area and hours of training ground work will lead to three moments in a game where that will happen. I, I, it's very frustrating as a coach, actually, because you have these wonderful ideas on the training ground and then it doesn't always come together, but those moments where it does. And as you say, that, that throwing routine, they might've worked on that for several times, several hours doing that repetitive process of playing the throw-ins right now, we're going to do this right now. We're going to move here. Okay. This time you spin in this area and trying to find something that clicks they might only do it once a season, but that magic moment where it does come off and a goal comes from it, that's what all those hours were building towards, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Like, as I say, like, fans aren't going to often once see, see those bits of go in, but, it may, I mean, it would annoy me as a coach if I was, if you put loads and loads of effort into a specific set piece or something, and then you do it, it comes off when you're 3-0 three, three down and with four minutes to play. And suddenly you, you've pulled it off and you're like, oh, we, we could have used that another time, lads, really. You, you know, you've ended up, ended up almost wasting it. Someone's seen it now and you're never going to be able to do that again. Right, let's talk about, let's talk about Chino for a little while then. We've talked about sort of the rounded side of coaching, scouting, um, but I'm interested in Chino, the man, the myth, the legend. You've done well in your football, as you said. You've done um, done your A for B now. Uh, you're part of a pro club setup. What's next for you? Where do you see yourself going, or where do you have ambitions to move on? Or no, I'm I'm quite happy in my role. Um, I've mulled over the A license. I would like to do it, but it's it's a big commitment. Um, it's quite a lot of money, and I'm not sure it's it's difficult at the moment because with the COVID restrictions, the courses aren't running as they normally would. Like I know a guy who's just finished his B license and it. He found it really hard because obviously halfway through it, they weren't allowed to go together anymore. It all had to be done virtually or them coming to you. So it wasn't a great experience, but obviously things will get up, up to normal again, hopefully very soon. But so that, yeah, the A license would be my next kind of goal, but it's, it's a lot to do. And because I'm not a full-time coach as well, it's difficult to get on it. So that would probably be the dream if you, as you call it. But um, yeah, it's probably a bit of a distant dream at the moment, I think. Is the age group you're at now, is that sort of where you want to stay? Would you be interested in the future of maybe going up to an older age group um, or maybe moving on to a club that is that even at a, a higher academy level? Or I don't know about the, the second question. I really don't know because I'm, as I'm really happy where I am at the moment. So there's no kind of urge to move on. Mm-hmm. The first question about a different age group. You know the score because you've coached well. You kind of get really close to your players and you, you kind of, if they move on, well, they will move on to 13s. I don't know. Part of me thinks I'd quite like to go up with them. I don't know. It's, it's a tough question. I'm quite happy in that age because it, it's the age that I teach at as well. So I kind of teach that age in my school, in my teaching job. So I think that's probably the age where I'm best suited to coach him. Um, yeah, so I can bring a lot of the skills in from my kind of day job, if you like. 
and I don't know, Darren will know because I think he's coached older players. I mean, you said you've done 18s as well. I think mm-hmm. once they get to like 14, 15, they get a little, you get a bit more of the attitude. The 12s are a good age to coach because they're not quite at that, that age yet. Darren was talking about the kind of different attractions and kind of things that they might go like go, start going out and things like that. Under 12s, they're not quite at that yet, which is nice because they're still really committed to their football. I think as you get into the kind of the older age groups, the kind of distractions do start. Well, the challenges change, don't they? I mean, there's always been that thing that to be a coach, you, well, a lot of grassroots coaches, they go on a, a one-day level one or a two-day level one. I'm not really sure how long it is now, but it's, it's basically a turn up and you get a level one, isn't it? Let's be honest, it's very hard not to obtain that licence if you get onto the course and the prerequisites while well, there are none because it's the first coaching licence. And that allows you yeah. to be a coach, a, an assistant coach, at most levels of football um, going up until you hit academy, where you could coach an under-18s county-level side with a level one qualification. But what isn't covered by that is you've got to be football coach, mentor, shoulder to cry on, you've got to be the identifier of welfare issues, you've got to be... There's so many different elements, there's so many hats that you have to wear as a coach. You're not coaching players, you're coaching people and you're trying to teach them to stay dedicated to this sport and to football um, through, through those distractions, really. I'm not sure one day course cuts you out for that, but um, one of the notes that we had was about the shifting coaching styles, wasn't it, in the last sort of 15 years or so, you said. And, Definitely, yeah. And how much more of the coach education side has brought that on, I think. Yeah, like I know you've worked within the game and within the FA, and, and you've like you know how the courses are structured. The, the best course I've, I've, I've done the B license, but I think the best course I've ever done was the youth module because it was just mm. the the B license, the level two. They're very much about the tactical and technical side of the game, whereas the the youth modules are about dealing with like working with young people and like the other like Darren touched on it earlier, and you've spoken about it, kind of t- treating them not just as footballers but as people making their way through life and the way you coach them. Like we've all. We've all played the game to various different standards. I think I'm talking for all of us here when I say that when we were 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, the style of coaches, and it wasn't the coach's fault, it's just the way it's always been ingrained into coaches, is everyone stops, the coach talks for 20 minutes, then we get back into it. Okay, <laughs> yeah. We've all been there, we've all experienced that. Whereas now that's moved very much away from that, where you're trying to keep the session going as much as you possibly can. So if you see a mistake, it doesn't mean you have to stop the whole session. You can go and talk to that kid one-to-one if you want to and mm-hmm. just give him the advice. So the ball rolling time is really big from the FA now. So I think it's about 75% they want the ball in play in a training session. So if you've got it under 75% and, so, and that you were being watched by some of the FA, they'd say you just need to up your game a little bit in terms of ball rolling time. And that's tough because every time you see something, you want to step in. But as you know, Herbie, and as you know, Darren, from, from coaching and watching sessions, that that's not the way it's done anymore. And at first, that's hard to get your head around because you want to go in there all the time and say, well, hang on a minute, that, you need to be doing that, you need to be there. But actually, I think the youth modules are brilliant and they, they teach you a different mm. way to do it. And it's a lot about guiding discovery. You might give little hints and tips and then the kids take it on. It's the wrong way around, really, because I think the youth module is more um, should be more necessary than the level one if you're coaching young Absolutely. players. You know, agree, it, yeah. it's, it's sort of backwards because I see a lot of coaches, grassroots coaches that I know, that try and be really dynamic. They've done the level one. They're thinking about doing the level two. They are trying to improve and trying to have that dynamic side, to, as we're saying about um, their style of coaching. But a lot of coaches I see where they, they're trying to put really good ideas into practice and you can see the session's good, but they haven't been given the knowledge of how to apply that to the kids. So um, line drills, for example. 
So they're yeah. thinking, right, this is really good because it, the, the kids get to run around this cone, ball comes in from this side, they get a shot, brilliant. But what they're not considering is it might be another like three and a half minutes until that kid touched the ball again. I think and the biggest thing what we've got to realise is that it, this level one course where everyone seems to get wound up about, it, it's not, I don't think it's even a football coaching course. I always mentioned it as a coach protection course. Mm. It tells you how not to do things. It tells you that you can't speak to kids um, in this manner. It says that you don't do a team talk while the kids are getting changed. It, it tells you all the things not to do, but it doesn't teach you how to be a good coach. Now, with Matt, with you being a teacher, you've more than likely got a way about you where you can speak to kids. I've been an all-boys school teacher um, in Gillingham, and when you've got 33 in a classroom, to keep them interested for a 40-minute lesson is extremely hard. So if you take that away and you put it into a one-hour football session, the numbers come down, hopefully, because it's more of a bite-sized chunk that you're working with, and it's more manageable. But the teaching side of things, I bet you when you've done your, I don't know if you've done your PGCE or your Cert Ed, that that yeah, taught you yeah. more about coaching than what it did about football because of the way to speak to people, how to adapt things, how to see the signs and change things on the spot. Definitely. And I think that's key because when you said there about adapting things, like differentiation, well, you know, you, you've been in classrooms and you, you know the score on that level differentiating it's if you're a football like Herbie said there if you're doing a level one level two I would say level two is a good course but level one definitely where you're you're coaching players but it doesn't give you any information about actually you're coaching a whole group of players they're very different levels across a group regardless of where you are even in an academy you're going to get players that are slightly better than others in grassroots it's a professional elite level you're always going to get that it's how you can differentiate your session to challenge every single person in that group. And that's the same in the classroom. As you said, you're going to get kids, if you're doing a maths lesson, some are going to get it straight away. Others are going to take the whole lesson to get it. Others won't get it at all. And it's the same in football. It's very, very similar. When you're putting on a session, how can you make sure that so-and-so who's the top of the group is being challenged while the other lad at the other end who finds it really tough, it's manageable for him as well. The other thing is, and you, you know this and so would you, Herbie, from your coaching, that you get different personality, not just about the quality of the player, the personality of the players as well. Mm. So the way you speak to somebody in the group might work really well, but others might need it a slightly different way. They might need to kind of the, the traditional like arm around the shoulder kind of way. Or Yeah, under 16 is a massive one for that because they're just on that turn of age. Some of them, they need to kick up the arse essentially. They need to be told you're doing it wrong and you need to improve or you're not going to progress. You tell that to another lad in the same age group, they'll crumple. There's, yeah. you've still got the ones that are quite kiddie in that group and then you've got the ones that are like already men almost you know there you, you get a big um, difference in character as you say uh, you start seeing leadership qualities you see the ones that want to turn up work hard lead the session almost set the example and then you've got the others that want to turn up and dick around essentially and that kiddish behavior and you've got to try and bring those people those players up to the level of the ones that are setting the standard, you know, and that, that is a massive challenge. It, that's a difficult job. It's very, very hard to do. But the it thing is, with that is you've got the age differential. Even though they're under 11s, it could be that there's 364 days difference between them. Mm. That's a whole year of development. Definitely. Both physically and mentally. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I think what you said there about the birth thing as well is really interesting because I think it was two or three years ago when I was on one of the CPD courses and they were talking about birthday and how you don't really think about it until you go into a, an academy environment, how 
I might be slightly out, but roughly between 70 and 75% of the, the kids in academies are born between the 1st of September and the 1st of January. You learned that on your UEFAB because I got the same figures. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. So that's a big statistic that it goes right the way through to if you have a look at the birth dates of most premiership players that they're in the early part of the year as well. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's, it's interesting because my boy's born in July, so he's right at the other end of the year. But when we lived in Italy, they do it from January to December, like a normal, like a traditional year. Yeah. So if you're born on the 1st of January there, you're the oldest in the year. And if you're born on the 31st of December, you're the youngest. So he went from being right at the end of the year to somewhere in the middle. So it's interesting how, because there's always these discussions around how can we make it fair for those born later on in the year. There's always going to be somebody that's the youngest, isn't there, essentially? You just touched on um, your time out in Italy. Did you do much coaching out there? And what was the was there a difference in dynamics of coaching in Italy compared to in England? Very much so. Yeah, I, I coached um, the first year. I wasn't doing a lot of coaching myself. I was doing more observation because we were still settling in, moving house. So by the time we'd actually settled in, it was mid October. So as you know, it's, it's difficult to get something when the season's kind of a third of the way through near enough. But I managed to get in touch with a guy living out where I did it. Was, it was great because you've got AC Milan and Inter Milan just around the corner. It's like you'd consider the north northwest of England. You've got the two Manchester clubs, the Liverpool clubs. You've got all these mm. other kind of clubs yeah, in sure. the Champions, all within about 30 miles of each other. And Milan's a very, very similar kind of place. It, as well as Milan and Inter, you've got a whole host of other teams in the top league, the second league. So the quality of football there is is outstanding. And um, in that first year, as I say, I can't remember how I got put in touch with the guy. I might have been just kind of a colleague at work. This guy's partner was doing a dissertation at university and he, he texted me one evening and said, oh, um, can you help her with some English on this thing? She's, it needs to be done in English. So we met up this night, me, him, and like they came to the flat and we got talking. It turns out, I knew he was a coach, but he was actually a coach at Milan's Academy. And he said, if you ever want to come down and watch a session. So I spent probably the first two or three months after we'd settled watching a lot of sessions down at Milan. And then from that, it's a bit of a long story, but I got put in touch with a coach who was there looking for a coach at a club about 10 miles from our place, which would be the equivalent of kind of a, they were kind of a Dover Athletic, just below pro level. Yes, sort of that conference level, the National League sort of level. Yeah, yeah. but it was good because they had like, out there there's a lot of links between clubs. So a lower league club is often a feeder club for a higher level club. Mm -hmm. And they used to send their players into Milan and Inter all the time. And um, after so that season, I was doing a little bit of helping out across the age groups. And they asked me to do one of the younger teams the season after because my son started playing. So I took his team. And um, But going back to your original question, it's very, very different, I think, to here. They're still very much... And they're obviously doing things right because they've got a lot of good young players at the moment. But it was very much how we do it 20 years ago with the coach talks a lot. There's a lot of lines. It's very much stop, stand still. Very different from the approach we seem to have adopted here. But as I say, at the moment, I know they didn't qualify for the last World Cup, but they've got a lot of good young players. I think they're going to do well in the Euros as well. I think so it's working for them, but it is different. Did you ever come across any of the pro players, you know, living where you did? Did you ever encounter any? Yeah, it's quite a lot, actually. Cause the school that um, my son was at was the same school that a lot of the players sent their kids to. And they were all, you hear lots of stories about footballers, they're this and they're that. But honestly, every single one was, obviously, they're picking their kids up from school. You can't be haranguing them and like talking to them all the time but they'd always give their time up to because my son did swimming with um a couple of the milan players kids and they'd come and watch and you just want to leave them alone because they're, they're just normal people at the end of the day but they would they'd always have a chat and it worked well because as i say my son when he was at school he didn't really when we started there was only five or six i think he was near, just six 
and he wasn't into football at all. Didn't, you see, the thing when you have a son, you're like, brilliant, I'm going to go and play football with him and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> but up until the age of six, he wasn't bothered. He'd, he'd rather do Lego and do other other bits and pieces. And then because he was in a class with, I think, three kids whose dads were all pros, you can imagine that playtimes, it was out to play football. And then suddenly something a light just went inside him. And he, yeah, great. And he was going to their part, birthday parties and, yeah, interesting places. So, <laughs> yeah, can, you, can you name drop any of the players? Uh, well, I'll, all I'll say is they're still they're still at those those clubs, most of them. So fair enough. I don't want to give too much away, but um, I'd say three of them are still there between Milan and I'll give you a clue. One of them played in a World Cup final in 2018 on the losing side, and he's played for the two. He's played for one of the Milan sides. So you can go and do your research and work it out. <laughs> so we'll do a competition. Who can guess the player? <laughs> yeah, we could do. Yeah, but no, it was. It was, and it's just to say, even the players at the club I was coaching, it was a, it was a good. It wasn't a full. It wasn't a pro academy, but um, the quality you could tell. It's probably similar to to players that live. On, you know, it's like on the outskirts of London. You've got so many clubs, and the quality is just so high. They can go into Arsenal, they can go into Tottenham, Chelsea, QPR, Fulham. They can go in at all those clubs. I can imagine it being very, very similar to, to that in Milan when you've got four or five massive clubs that are out looking. Are the demands there for? artificial pitches and stuff like that because obviously the weather conditions are completely different out in Italy and obviously here one of the things that I think holds back a lot of player progress is the fact for example our area has got one 3G covering a huge amount a huge amount of kids and a lot of clubs can't even get on it you go to other areas there's you know multiple 3Gs all over the place and I just wonder if sometimes the development comes down to the facilities that are available to players in the areas I know obviously you were in a very built-up area so with a lot of clubs around it so how did that sort of compare in terms of the quality of the pitches and things like that that the kids were playing on that's a really interesting question actually like I know what you're saying about the the weather wasn't massively different because because it's so far north the winters are, they're not quite as cold, but it gets chilly and the summers are hot, but it's not extreme heat like you would get if you went kind of maybe 100 miles further south. But having said that, you're right that most weekends when there were matches, it was done on 3G or like artificial surfaces. The training was the only thing I would say, <clears throat> excuse me, that was slightly disappointing in that because we've got the edge here, I think, because most people train now on 3Gs, don't they, in the evenings on the floodlights. But there, we were given an old school gym. It's a bit run down. It was really, really small. And then in the, in the lighter evenings, we were on grass pitches, which were fine. But I'd say on that score, the matches were great because they never really got they never really got called off. Matches were rarely called off because they were either on grass, sorry, on these decent 3G pitches or in the summer, as you say, the weather's pretty good. When when I when I coach my grassroots team, we turn up. Sometimes you you got to go around with two cones and pick the dog poo off the pitch because it's a public <laughs> you know it's a public path and you know on Tuesdays it's a dog run on Wednesdays it's a Pilates class on you know it's a, yeah. it's an area that is generally used for everything. The grass is long. There's um you're, you're putting cones in holes so that kids don't you know turn their ankles in holes sometimes just to make them aware of where they are and stuff. And I, I just wondered if it, it was the same sort of sort of thing out there really well the one thing that i found really it was fine for us because obviously i was working but one thing i was quite surprised by was the fact that here in the uk like you you taught you um coached a lot of grassroots herbie and you you know the score but out there you paid your money up front so for example you paid i can't remember what it was it was quite a lot of money a few hundred euros that would buy you your the kids kit for the season they would get within that kit they get their own bag they get a training kit they get a rain jacket they get a lot of kit. It was good. You weren't being ripped off. It was worth the money. Mm-hmm. 
and that would also pay all their subs for the season. So no money changed hands after that first payment was made. However, I did think, actually, unless you're in a family that's got maybe two parents working, that's going to rule quite a lot of families out that maybe lower down the, the economic bracket, if you like, mm. which surprised me because, well, I say it surprised me, but I don't know how Italy would... There must be players there that make it from, from poor backgrounds, but it, I just thought it was tough for a player from a poorer background to, to break into that. It's quite Whereas rude. here, because it's because it's done monthly, you can you can usually find thirty quid or whatever you need, can't you? But I mean, that bulk of money up front was a bit tougher. I thought in England, we've got so many community-focused projects that are dragging players from poorer backgrounds into the pro games, isn't it? It's it's almost a place yeah. to go and find players. Let's be honest, because a lot of these lads are just spending every waking hour playing football in the streets, and that's develop that's allowing them to develop skills that can never be coached. Yeah, and teach them. You know, if you can keep a ball from thirty lads on a street then you're going to be able to do it on an 11 side pitch in tight, tight congested areas. It teaches some good skills. And yeah, it's interesting when you say, I went um, I went to the Euros in France, uh, went out to Marseille and we actually on the train, you, you, you're going into Marseille, you've seen all these like, they're the caged tarmac yeah. football pitches. You think that those um, those countries, you think about the players they, they produce, you think about your Brazils, your Spains and stuff. They all, they're not reliant on those facilities. It's, just, it's all street players that have all come up. Yeah. So it's interesting you say, if you price those players out of football, are you going to miss potentially the best player in the world because he never gets a chance to develop? That's been really interesting. Thanks for your time, Gino. You're our first guest, mate, honorary guest. You're officially a friend of the pod. <laughs> it's been really interesting to get your insight. I know Daz is in his element talking about coaching this evening and me as well. <laughs> thanks for your time, Gino. It's much appreciated, mate. No, thanks you guys. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And um, I'll catch you all soon. All right. You cheers, too, buddy. Thank Take you. care, guys. So that concludes episode three. Been really interesting to have someone from professional academy background, coaching background, scouting background on the call. Really appreciate Chino giving up his time to come on the pod. He's given us some really good insight there. If people do want to drop us a message and tell us about their experiences in the game, they can do so. They can message us on Instagram. Our handle is at the relatable game. And on Twitter, we are at TRG Pod. We also have an email address, which is the relatable game at gmail.com. Boom.